Let's go to Second uh, Kings, and um, we're going to be launching into chapter four. You remember that the last one that we taught, the emphasis of that teaching was, now bring me a musician. And this was Elisha who in a time of needing to make a very critical decision needed to have his mind in focus. And so we talked um, about what the songs of God can do for us. We've been blessed as a church with songwriters. You've heard them as soon as they're penned. And I find out about it, we play them. We actually have them playing their songs. And it's important because it is a work of the Spirit. Worship is a work of the Spirit. It's an expression. It does something to our hearts. When we come in here, not all of us are put together. Not all of you can comb your hair like I can and feel good about yourself. And so one of the things that the Lord does is He allows our hearts to be softened. He allows our mind to be touched in a way that engages us. Through usually one, two, three, or four songs that we start off with, if not the hymn that we open the service up with, you know, the Lord's working on us. And we have an altogether different feeling than what we came in here. It's a perspective. It's the work of the Spirit working through worship songs to Him. So that was our last focus. And this was Elisha that sought a musician. I think that's cool. One who had a double portion of blessings of the Spirit of God upon him. And with all of that empowerment, he asks for a musician. What a tool that is. Giving you a perspective right now as to where we're at. He's now fully on the scene. His ministry right now is to take over where Elijah left off. They're two different men in their personalities. So you look at each other among yourselves, both men and women, we all have very unique personalities. What God does is he takes those unique personalities and he forges us into not something that is dissimilar, but something that works in that personality in harmony with what his spirit is doing. It's why very often we are so impressed with one another than perhaps we are with ourselves because the Lord allows us to see something in that other person that's both remarkable and certainly mentionable to him in prayer. That's where I have perhaps a better perspective because I can see all of you broadly at once. You perhaps have a perspective on me that equally is able to say, I know that guy because I'm singularly one that for a few minutes is before you. You make decisions based on the word that I'm teaching, the countenance that I have, the manner by which I am confidently voicing the assurance that God's in control. These things are important. But as we come back just a few pages back, I want you to see a contrast that's important for today's teaching in what is Second Kings chapter 4. I want you to go back to First Kings and I want you to look particularly with me in the 17th chapter. And this is Elijah now. So he's in heaven. 
right? He was taken in a fire chariot, horses on fire. He's out of the way. He's in heaven in Yahweh's domain. And the reason I want to take you to this is a contrast that we'll see between Elijah and Elisha, their ministries. They're both accomplishing God's will. Elisha's job was to sit under the tenure of Elijah, about 15 years difference between the two. And so this is rather extraordinary in how it seems so similar. Verse 8 of chapter 17, the word of the Lord came to him. This is to Elijah, not Elisha. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So a widow has been commanded by God in advance of Elijah getting there. And here's what we discover as he obeys. He arose, went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. He's traveled, traveled far. He's thirsty. He acknowledges, very likely in the spirit, that this is the woman that he would have provision to his needs while being there. And so, as he reaches there, she was going to get it, and he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Cup of water, she's en route to take care of that need, calls out to her before she's able to finish it. Says, hey, bring me some bread as well, water and bread. We take those for granted, don't we? The convenience of many kinds of drinks that we have, many kinds of foods that we can eat. Back then, it would have been the best you could hope for. And so she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She hears the word of the Lord. He heard the word of the Lord. They merged together in her city. And we find out that in obedience, she has deeply been assessing that this is the last meal that she will enjoy with her son. She's getting the twigs that it would take to light a fire, to make bread, with the little oil that she has left. These things she's doing obediently, and she's also being transparent to a man of God who heard from the same Lord that she heard from. Isn't that interesting? That even both parties, even in our lives, can hear the word of the Lord, respond to him, and have different assessments as to the outcome of what we've been asked to do what ultimately it may mean in the doing of it. She has a disposition that says, this is all I've got. And now you ask me for that which is barely enough for me. 
This is her reply. As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour and just a little jar of oil. And so, verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. That's a good word for you and I. Don't fear with what it is you seemingly don't have. Take faith in what God says you do have. Are you guys riding really high on the economic uh, pinnacle of provision right now? Most of us would say, we've seen better years. We've seen better years. It's interesting that much about what we assess concerning the years that we would qualify as better hinges on economics. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as, as believers, we are able to say it's his, always has been his. I've been given a little, and he makes a lot of what I would say ain't enough. It's the Lord. So even in our times, we measure things with what we would say are both meeting the needs and also surplus of what we hope will get us through. We all have that. Churches do too. What does God say about that? I'm the governor of that. I'm in charge of that. I'll use what you feel you cannot give up to multiply what no one else could do, that my name might be magnified. And so Elijah is just affirming, don't fear. In essence, you heard God's voice. I heard his voice. Magnify faith. Let's see what he wants to do in this. And so with that encouragement, he says to her, make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. Some of us could look at that and we say, man, that's pretty insensitive. Fill my belly first and my cup first and then there's going to be something left over for you. But see, that's one of the discomforts of faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. In this case, the old song of the 50s wasn't going to be working too well in that kitchen. Get out in that kitchen and rattle those pots and pans and make my breakfast because I'm a hungry man. Melody hadn't been added to it, but there's a depressive right now spirit in her. And to top it off, he says, now, this is what you're going to do with what it is you do have. Feed me first. And that's just like God to give us a lesson as well. Take care of me first. Wait, God, you take care of me. How can I take care of you? Take care of the things that are important to me. Take care that as you come to church, you are a minister. You are one that sets an example that in times such as this, what are you looking for? As people are looking at you, are you able to direct and point them confidently to me? As pockets are coming out with only lint balls and no coins, are you able to say, God is able? And that's really a picture right now. We have a man that's hungry. He's thirsty. It doesn't mean that he's insensitive. He is in the process of forging her faith. Because there's going to be a community that very likely is aware 
of her circumstance, very likely now scratching their heads concerning this union that is both supernatural and now natural. Supernatural is what God does to bring you together. Natural is how you deal with a crisis in a moment, being challenged by your relationship with God, and how's he going to make this work out? And so that's what he's asked her to do. And then afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. Afterwards, God's first, we're second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever it is that God says we are. He's first. And that's the picture that we see here. And so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. There's supply that seemingly does not lack. From one meal to the next, they ate for many days. The bin of your flower, in verse 14, says what? It shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. This is something that will take place as both a charge from God to Elijah, but also as a sign. You're not going to have to fear running out. And in this time, you have opportunity to store it up. That's where you get the concept of the storehouse. Nothing wrong with that too. Many of you are practitioners of having pantries that are full of fish that you've caught, meat that you've purchased in advance. Some of you live with a bounty to be able to have for yourself. I think it's wise. We do too. The question is, when it comes time, is it a bounty that we would also be benevolent in its provision to others? In these days, there are some people putting more emphasis on the bounty that they have in their cupboards for that time in which perhaps the economy collapses rather than their bounty that is to be invested in heaven. And that's important. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At times the treasury of a person's heart is depleted because everything came first but God. And that can't ever be the model that you follow with an outcome that you would say, well, sure glad I did that. Those were good years, weren't they? No, they were actually lean years. And spiritually, they decimate you. You become literally, even perhaps in a fullness of your human condition, content, you become depleted, scrawny, weak spiritually. I've been hosted at people's homes with amazing feasts. And Christy is an amazing cook. I think for the past week I've been going, I'm pretty sure I was going to try to cut down 20 pounds going to this conference. You seem to be making me a jolly old fat man. But what I do with it, that's my problem. I'm just telling you that inside our homes, even with the best of intentions on how we're going to magnify God in them. There are things that are both consequence and there are things as well 
that are just flat out, Lord, you've been good in spite of the consequence that has been rendered to me. You've been faithful. And so this right now is a pledge and promise ultimately to this woman who within the next couple of verses will have another life's challenge. And that is her son who's enjoying this meal dies. And Elijah is going to be called on once again. Very often in our faith, it gets tested by another incident, another episode, in which what we intended was to be the glory of an unfolding new beginning becomes something that desperately requires God one more time. It's okay, as long as you're desperate for God one more time, as long as the next incident leads you to a desperation for God one more time. Okay, that's the picture leading into this story. And it's about the same in its length. The principle, though, is what we're looking at. Elijah, just a couple of pages back, having been divinely sent to this city to meet up with this woman who also heard from God, and both of them having a desire to satisfy ultimately the command that God gave them. Elijah has to take no sympathy on how she feels about her surrendering cup of water, great, but now oil and flour, that he might eat first. God has no challenge in saying that I might eat first. Bring me my supper. Bring me my praises. Bring me my worship. Bring me my tithe, that I might open for you the windows of heaven that will pour out in measure that you cannot contain. Uncle Sam has no problem asking, how many of you got filed on time? I just called my tax person. I said, could you talk to the feds for me and just give me a little more time? That's true. <laughs> because my tax accountant does a good job talking to the feds. They only like hearing from me when my check says, hi, good to see you again. Happy to help you. But I put my trust in the Lord as I also take care of the areas of responsibility that are mine. Chapter 4 with Elisha, 15 years junior to Elijah, wasn't yet a part of that scenario, but I do not doubt that he had heard about it. Intrigued by it, impressed, to now have sensitivities when in likeness, He's called to do something compassionately. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband is dead. So Elijah was one that formed at least three schools of prophets. Elisha was brought into that. That would be our Bible college in similitude. And so Elisha is maintaining that on touring. Obviously, this man was a part of that work. And this woman, now a widow, he's passed away, appeals. You know my husband. He was a righteous man. And he's dead. For her, this would be a nail in her coffin. 
Because in those days, the widow would have been quite hopeless, except for God, helpless culturally. And so she calls upon a man of God, one whose reputation has preceded him. Do you know that your reputation will precede you? Meaning that God's doing a work in you that he will make so relevant to somebody beside you or behind you that you will get tagged. You will be remembered for what you've gone through. You will be a blessing in terms of having the mark of a man of God, of being distinguished among others as one whose faith can certainly be admired and applied. So in this, similar to his teacher, You know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. This can be anchored in a provision found in three books of the Bible. It can be found both in Exodus chapter 21. It can be found in Leviticus chapter 25. It can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 15. You can read through it. It's the laws of indentured servanthood meaning that because of what you cannot pay, you then will pay with, in essence, your strength, your labor, what a person gets from you because they don't get what they originally wanted from you. And so it's very interesting because there was an allowance for it, for there to be servitude. You need to understand that God's allowance for it's actually a picture of then creating in the desire of a man's heart to be free, set free from bondage. Because one who serves, one who has control over them, becomes the master of them. So even at times we're allowed to feel as though somebody is mastering us. Somebody's got control of the strings of my heart or the purse strings that I have. But what is God saying to us in that? Nope, it's just a feeling. It has on it the mark that you are being governed or controlled, but I am the one that governs them. I govern you. It doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. What it means is we have a heart's cry that needs to be considered. We appeal, Lord, this is my need. This is where I'm at. This is what I feel weighing all things out is where I'm at. Not a good place. And God says, so glad you talked to me about that because I do really good finding good places for you. I do really good about turning bad situations into radical stories of blessings and redemption. That's what I do. So glad we could talk in this moment with each other. That's what God does. And so now the two sons, they're not coming after her. They're coming after the two sons. Apparently, that was optional. Did they get a lady who might be able to cook? or the strength of two sons who might be able to work, multiplying 
that financial prosperity. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? The tender heart of Elisha, having been under a stronger personality of Elijah, and yet no doubt, because he's asked for a double portion, guess, guess what he got with it? He got both strength to serve fearlessly, but he got compassion to serve sensitively. And it's really important that in our lives we realize that two tensions exist. Can I be strong enough and can I be sensitive enough? So sensitivity for us in the church, all you have to do is look at women in the church who both have a strength as women, sisters in the faith, and a sensitivity that's marked by the way they speak, the way that they listen. On the other hand, sisters can learn from brothers the kind of resource of strength that they have and the temperament and humility that it takes to also be sensitive when you're not necessarily wired for that. When you see it, that there is this wonderful homogenation of spiritual giftings that is in combination of strength and sensitivity, it's amazing. You go, what is it that God could not achieve through those of us who truly are at his disposal? And so this woman right now, under Elisha, hears a sensitive voice in what you hear in that phrase, what shall I do for you? Tell me. If you could say, who... Okay, so would Jesus be kind of like that? Is that what Jesus would be? Actually, Elisha is one who does have, reflective in his ministry, the heart and compassion of Jesus. That's exactly right. Elijah, sword and fire, water, drought, temperament. But Elisha is typifying the compassion of Jesus. What shall I do for you? Tell me. Do you remember the man that was in paralysis by the pool at Bethesda? And what did he do? Nothing. He couldn't get into the water fast enough. Jesus came by and said, what can I do for you? Jesus moved to touch people's lives with this very same question of the heart. What can I do for you? Tell me. Today, that might be a question that you would say, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't you think of it? I don't know. But you thought about coming to church, so maybe this for you is that word. What can I do for you? Tell me. Today, what can I do for you? Tell me. What a promise. So, let's advance. What do you have in the house? Moves right into that. Didn't get the answer. What do you have in the house? What do you have in your house? What are the things that you could say you've been blessed with, even though for you, it doesn't essentially mean that which God is going to be able to do anything with? What do you have in this house? This house is the temple of God. What do you have in this house that God would say, that's what I need. That's going to work perfectly. And what it is you want and what it is, you couldn't quite tell me what's in here. And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Just a jar of oil. Oil typifies 
in symbolism, the spirit of God, when men and women, in particular men, by the majority, were anointed, they were anointed with rich olive oil. An oil that was extracted from a fruit off of a tree, and it was used both medicinally in terms of the bandaging of wounds with the mixture of both wine. It was an analgesic. It was that which also was an antibiotic. It healed the process of a body mending. It was used cosmetically. It was used for hair, which I would have found out that earlier. And so there was a wealth of value in this oil. And it was used, obviously, epicureanly, the preparing of food. It was the go-to for everything that an industry would find to be profitable. And God found it to be profitable spiritually. And she's got just a little bit left. Conversely, like the woman under Elijah, just a little bit of flour, just a little bit of oil. What can be done? Well, you take that, do your thing with it. Aunt Mabel's recipe is fine, but feed me first and we'll see what happens. And then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. The other had flour and a little oil. This woman has just a little oil and now needs to be obedient in acquisitioning vessels that will do what? Well, from her perspective right now, she couldn't imagine what that would be. You go and borrow these vessels everywhere from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Go after everything that you see, borrowing them. You don't have to explain it, just borrow them. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. It was going to be an endless supply of oil coming out of this jar that she had. That would be, oh, the vernacular in my older days were mind-blowing. To such a degree in that form of a miracle that she would be asked to shut the door. Don't let anybody take a look. And so she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons and brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. She's now incorporated her sons into this. Why would they be motivated? Because if there wasn't a miracle, they were going to debtor's prison. They were going to be picking weeds out of somebody's strawberry garden. Not entitled to the fruit, just to get rid of the weeds. Don't know if they have strawberries over there or not. And their motivation then would be, we've got to contribute to this. We've got to contribute to this. And obedient sons too. That's a good thing to be reminded of. And so the doors shut, the oil is poured out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. And so the oil ceased. It's a picture of faith that sometimes we limit what faith will do. Was there in fact, every available vessel that she had sought 
that she sent her sons to get that could have been brought in? Or was there one left behind because, oh, we don't want to bother them again. Or we're doing good. We're doing good. We don't know. And it's not necessarily an indictment. It's just saying there's no more to fill up. And in that, the oil ceases. But notice what happens in this. When the vessels were full that she said to her son, and he gets the answer to her, she came and told the man of God and said, he's saying this to her, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons live on the rest. Go and sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons live on the rest. Kind of poetic. God was going to give her not only what it would take to satisfy her creditors, but also to be able to live beyond that, return the vessels that she would have had no need of. She would have been able to buy her own vessels. It would have been extravagant enough for her to live off. So you have to understand, there was a lot of oil We have a lot of oil in our country. We're just not allowed to live off of it. <laughs> you can talk to God about that. <laughs> and so the story closes really right there. That both of these women needed to exercise a faith beyond reason for them. And they were rewarded for it as you and I have to do the same thing. We have to express extraordinary faith. We do what we can and the limitations that we have, realizing that we're outsourcing to an unlimited God. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we do foolish things, but it does mean that from time to time, we are required to do faithful things that seem impossible, even worthy of mockery. But we love God. Most importantly, He loves us. I can assure you that for anybody in doubt, as much as I think God loves me, he loves you more. I have a friend that says that. He loves you more. God bless you. He loves you more. I've always been charmed by that phrase. It's a brother that uses it with frequency. And he actually makes me believe it. Because he is so authentically saying it. He's just passing on faith. He's filling up my reservoir. And it's an amazing thing. And so I can say the same thing. In whatever or what manner you may be in, God loves you more. I mean that. So in conclusion, which we are going to do right now, I love the phrase that we came up a couple of weeks ago. Call for the musician. Let's put the songs of heaven into our heart. Keep our minds stayed and fixed on him. Let's take these stories, which are actually historical evidence that God who listened all those years back then to specific people that were in need and who utilized men and women in their faith for what would have been an impossibility does that very same thing today. We are vessels of the Holy Spirit. God's intention is to fill us up to the capacity of not only being wealthy for him, but having truly no need of the things that at one time 
took up portions of that area. We from time to time can get this vessel crowded. Sometimes as well, we forget that it's just empty and God wants to fill us and to do so because he is a good God who does great things through people who are willing to say, I'm empty.